If you spend any length of time living on this earth, at some point you'll find yourself in a situation sitting across from someone who is going through such loss, such tragedy, that leads to so much suffering that they look at you and all that they long for is some comfort. When you find yourself in that situation, how do you know what to say? How do you know what not to say? How do you know when to speak? And how do you know when to keep quiet? And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, at what point do you bring God into the equation? Job had three friends who decided when they heard of Job's great loss to go and visit him, to bring sympathy and comfort. When they got there, they didn't even recognize Job, and they spent seven days and seven nights sitting in the garbage dump on an ash heap while Job scratched himself with a broken piece of pottery, and they said absolutely nothing. Eventually, Job spoke up in chapter 3, and he cursed the day that he was born. He wished that he had been born dead and that his life had never been. How would you respond if you sat next to someone who said something like Job chapter 3 to you? Well, Job's friends don't seem to have any issues with speaking into Job's life. The next many chapters are an exchange between the comforters and Job. But as we go into uh, listening to their speeches, we do need to bear in mind one thing. Right at the end of the book, God speaks to these comforters. And he says to them, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So as we listen to the friends, we need to understand that we're learning what not to say to someone who is suffering. Now Job's friends are coming from a really good place. They want to show sympathy and they want to bring comfort to him. And they actually have quite a few good things to say, but what they say doesn't actually have very much to do with Job. So let's have a look at these friends. First, Eliphaz. He's in chapter 4 and 5, again in chapter 15. But in chapter 4, verse 7, we get to the very heart of his argument as to why Job is suffering the way that he's suffering. He says, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Eliphaz holds to what is known as the doctrine of retribution. God repays evil with evil and good with good. This is the key to the whole argument with Eliphaz. He goes on and speaks about how he has instructed others. You've given out plenty of advice, chapter 4, verse 5. But now troubles come to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. But you have uh, strengthened those who have stumbled. You supported them in the past, Job. Cheer up, just like you've cheered others up. And then he goes on to say why it is that Job should cheer up. Chapter 4, verse 6. Should not your piety be your confidence? Shouldn't your blamelessness be your hope? To put it simply, Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're a pretty good guy. And because you're a pretty good guy, you're on the right side of the doctrine of retribution. There's more good in your life than bad. And so actually somehow, Job, this is all going to turn out okay in the end. But I am a little bit worried, Job, because you've been cursing and complaining against God a lot. And if you carry on down that path, well, you may end up on the bad side and you may get more evil out of it. So, Job, listen to what I have to say. I'm talking to you from my own personal experience. Chapter 4, verse 8. As I have observed. Chapter 5, verse 3. I myself have seen the fool. 
Chapter 5, verse 8, if I were you, Job, he backs up all of his key points out of experiences that he has gleaned as he's watched life. But at the very center of chapter 4 and 5, Eliphaz actually appeals to some kind of mystical experience that he has. He says, Job, you know, this is what's happened to me. I, there was a word that was secretly brought to me. This is in verse 12, chapter 4. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls upon people, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, Job, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? This is Eliphaz, putting all of his personality and all of his authority and everything that he has to convince Job. It's basically saying, Job, why not just repent? After all, none of us are perfect. Uh, simply cursing the day you were born, well, that's a, a really foolish thing to do. In fact, let me tell you a story, chapter 5, verse 3. I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. The hungry consume his harvest, taking it even from among thorns, and the thirsty pants after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble, as surely as sparks fly upward. Okay, so this, this is what Eliphaz is saying. Job, we all slip up every now and then. Every now and then, we all sin in some way. It's human nature to make mistakes. Hardship, it doesn't just spring from the soil. It doesn't just appear from nowhere. It had to come from somewhere. And, and we're made for trouble. Therefore, Job, somehow you have brought this upon yourself. And I hope that you feel the emotional lacking that Eliphaz has when he speaks these words. Job just lost 10 of his kids a week ago, all of them. And then in chapter 5, verse 4, Eliphaz says, His children are far from safety. They're crushed without, uh, in the court without a defender. He speaks about the hungry coming to consume his harvest. Job lost all of his fields and all of his livestock. It's not anybody else's fault, Job. It's just you. It's a self-inflicting problem. So why not just repent? If I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. The whole message of Eliphaz is basically, hey, Job, this is all going to be okay. You're going to be all right. This is not the end of the world. Just accept that every now and then, everybody sins. We can't help it. Of course you mean good, but sometimes you just mess up. So, if you tell God that you're sorry, he can fix things up for you. He wants to fix things up for you. Chapter 5, verse 17, blessed is the one who God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. This sounds really good. It sounds kind of like Hebrews, where it, uh, the writer speaks about the Lord disciplines those he loves. But Eliphaz carries on that, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities, he'll rescue you. In seven, no harm will touch you. And then further down in verse 25, you will know that your children will be many. Your descendants, like the grass of the earth, you will come to the grave in full vigor, like sheaves gathered in season. We have examined this, and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. This is... Uh, Eliphaz, the encourager. I wonder if you've been sitting on the ash heap, uh, scratching yourself with a piece of broken pottery, 
Would Eliphaz have, have won you over? It's difficult to read Eliphaz without this sort of note or hint of sarcasm because we know what happened back in Job chapter 1 and 2. Uh, we know that the doctrine of retribution in chapter 4 verse 7 is completely false. It's actually precisely because Job is so outrageously righteous and so steadfastly faithful that he's gotten into this mess in the first place. Remember, it was God who said to the Satan twice, Have you considered my servant Job? It was the Satan replied, Well, God, Job serves you for nothing. Take it all away and he will curse you. Just let me mess him up. And so when we read this, we're actually asking ourselves already, why is Eliphaz wrong? He implies that Job is a fool. He pretty much says it outright. Uh, Job actually gives him some feedback later on in chapter 6, where he says, Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that stop flowing in the dry season and in the heat vanish in their channels. That, those are the kind of friends that you're being to me. He goes on and says, do you mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as wind? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friends. I doubt that after that, Eliphaz felt particularly affirmed if your closest, dearest friend had given you a present, a, a memorable gift to represent the depth of your relationship, a present to mark your love, your bond, a present that was a sign of future hope and future relationship, and one day you arrived home to angry hands which tore that loved gift from you and just took a sledgehammer to it and broke it into a million pieces, what would your immediate response be? Eliphaz seems to assume that the most urgent thing in a situation like that would be, can I have a new one, please? He's basically saying that Job's precious Lord has placed him on the ash heap, but that Job's greatest concern is that he just get back what he had before. Do you think that it is really the regaining of health that is keeping Job awake at night? His everything has been taken away from him. His children are dead by God's hand. Is a fresh batch of children going to silence the questions of his heart? Eliphaz seems to think so. Saying, Job, don't worry. God is punishing you. But if you can learn from this, and you can get the formula right, and you can get forgiven, then you can get it all back. Hey, Job, what a great deal. Job had much bigger questions and much bigger problems. Later on, talks about for longing for the days when he was in his prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house. You see, Job was after this intimate friendship, this personal relationship with God. He wasn't in it for the stuff, for the things that God could give him. He was in it for God himself. We're talking about a man who had an incredibly intimate relationship with his creator. When we sit across from someone who is suffering, we need to understand that they have much bigger questions and much bigger problems. That when we speak into their lives, 
We need to ensure that we are not being tactless, that we are not adopting some kind of false doctrine that doesn't actually exist, but that sounds nice, and that we're not overly simple in what we speak when we try to bring that sympathy. In chapter 7, we really begin to see the tragedy of the situation. Job replies as one who has fallen from grace and has been abandoned and rejected and scorned by God. He says, look, I don't know what I have done. I don't know why God is punishing me in this way. Chapter 7, verse 20. If I have sinned, what have I done to you? You who see everything we do, why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. Here you have, in his suffering, the depth of the bewildered anguish that he is going through, and all his friends can do is point out that he is being theologically incorrect in his assumptions. And so we move on to the next friend in chapter 8. His name was Bildad. And what we see beginning to come out in all of the friend speeches, but it begins to come into focus with Bildad, is that Job's friends betray a human being for the sake of false doctrine. It's highly significant that Job's friends never seem to talk to God. They only ever talk about him. But Job, for whom a relationship with his creator was at stake, constantly cries out to God as this back and forth carries on. The, the friends sort of acknowledge God, but it begins to become apparent that there is no relationship there. Listen to chapter 8, verse 2. Bildad says to Job, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. You're basically, Job, you're a windbag. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, and if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. There's so much emotion going on in these chapters, and, and there's no denying that whenever difficulty in life arises, emotions do run high. And emotions can be dangerous, especially when truth is at stake. Now, I do believe that there are some doctrines, there are some truths that are so valuable that blood should be shed over them to defend them. And part of what the book of Job does is to raise the question, how do we know when to let go of doctrine and let it give way to compassion? Do you see what Job's friends are doing? They refuse to let go of doctrine, and we discover that it's actually false doctrine that they refuse to let go of, not even true doctrine. They refuse to let go of their belief system in order to, in that moment of their friend's suffering, show him compassion. Good doctrine always describes the real world. What Job's friends are describing is not the real world. They are describing some kind of theoretical world. They are borrowing truths from all kinds of places, but the truths that they borrow, they then use to build a construct that is not the truth. It's kind of like 
if you need to get a set of directions and you take each line of the directions that Google Maps gives you and you kind of push shuffle, randomize it. If you randomize a set of directions, do you think that you will land up in the place that you intended to go in the first place? Of course not, because the directions have to follow a course in order to arrive at the final destination. Job's friends borrow truth, but then shuffle it up and build it into all kinds of different ways to create a theology and a God that is not reality at all. Good doctrine describes the real world. And so when you sit across from someone and try to comfort them, make sure that whatever truth that you are speaking into their life is truth that describes the real world and the truth that describes the reality of what they're facing. Bildad believes that the death of Job's children is a warning for Job to take stock before it's too late. That's a dangerous one, isn't it? What can we learn from the suffering that we're going through? Perhaps the suffering that you're going through is an opportunity for you to cast your eyes over the course of your life. Eliphaz got his authority from experience and mystical revelation, but Bildad gets his authority from tradition. He says in chapter 8, verse 8, Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Bildad is not going to let experience change his doctrine. But the result is this, chapter 8, verse 20. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. That is not doctrine that uh, works itself out, out in the reality of the world that we live in. For we know uh, that the righteous do suffer, and that evildoers get away with it more often than not. What he's talking about is a deduction uh, from the pages of a theology book rather than an observation from real life. Job, by contrast, has either the inner strength or the sheer desperation to live with a contradiction in terms. Chapter 9, verse 22. It's all the same. That's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? This is Job talking about God. This is Job demonstrating his complete trust and faith in the God who is sovereign and completely in control. Uh, this is the outworking of Job saying, do we not accept good from the hand of God and not evil also? Now, it might seem to be impossible to live like that, but Job has no option. And so, too, we can learn that there are mysteries in this world. There are things that appear to be contradictions in terms. That's why we have the word paradox, but they are not. Somehow, in God's world, in God's creation, and in God's economy, these things work together. Zophar is the most aggressive of all of these comforters. He speaks in verse 11, chapter 11, and he says, you're either humble and contrite before God, or you're an arrogant sinner and a talker. He says in chapter 11, verse 2, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? 
You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sins. This is probably the first time in the book that someone has decided that Job is not just a wayward child that needs to be brought back. Zophar's judgment is that Job is a full-blown sinner. And this is where the crazy comes in. Because what Zophar does is he distorts Job's words. He closes his eyes to reality. Because the one vital thing, the one thing that Zophar cannot allow for one moment to be threatened is God's justice. Zophar says, either Job is sinful and deserving everything, or God is unjust, and I'm going to choose that Job is sinful and he deserves everything that he got. And yet we know from chapter 1 and 2, and, and from the end of the book, that Job did not. That he was blameless and upright. That he feared God, and he shunned evil. And that God was doing something completely different in his life than what Eliphaz, Zophar, or Bildad had to say. And as Eliphaz points out in his second speech in chapter 15, it's incredibly threatening to hear the sorts of things and the sorts of challenges that Job is making against the doctrine of retribution. Chapter 15, verse 4. But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Uh, the doctrine of retribution must be defended. Can you see how ironic it is? How stupid even that these creations of God feel that they have to defend God as far as these friends are concerned. What they have set their minds to believe about God cannot be put aside for one moment in order to show compassion to their friends. Job's friends do not have the humility to realize that God might have a different solution if only they would come to him with their problem. Or perhaps there is no solution at all except that they just have to trust him. What we need to understand is that it got so bad that the friends actually created an alternative reality where they wrote sins out for Job that he must have committed. Chapter 22, verse 5, Is not your wickedness great? Are, your not, are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man owning land, an honored man living on it, and you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless, this is why snares are all around you, and why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers over you. Where are these guys coming from? How did they arrive at this conclusion for the most righteous man in the world? What has happened is that Eliphaz has taken reality and completely dismantled it, and he has reversed engineered it to fit into what he believes to be true about God. So let me say a couple of things in closing about what we learn when we sit with those who need to be comforted. Number one, we need to remember that true doctrine, good doctrine, describes the real world. Eliphaz had a lot of pieces right, but when you added it all up, he was way off track. When we speak, when we comfort, and when we show sympathy, we need to make sure that the things that we are saying 
The words that we speak describe the real world as God has revealed it to be. Secondly, true knowledge is found in relationship. Job's friends saw Job's problems very differently from the way Job saw them. There is no way that God can be this kind of God that we believe in, and Job can be experiencing what he is experiencing. When Job looked at his problems, he saw a broken relationship. Job wasn't worried about getting back the things that he had lost. Job was worried that his relationship with God had been lost. And his questions and his problems were about finding out why that was and how it could be repaired. True theology has to be done in the context of relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with one another. And that was where the friends broke down. They were prepared to throw Job under the bus. They were unwilling to show him compassion because they refused to be moved in what they believed about God. Now, to be fair, Job's position does leave the justice of God in question. It does tell us that life is full of contradictions that make it almost unbelievable. In the end, no one knows why Job suffered. Certainly the friends in Job didn't know because they didn't have the information that we have from Job chapter 1 and 2. God has revealed a little bit more of the reason for Job's sufferings to us. But it would also be true to say that God doesn't reveal the reasons for our sufferings to us in the days and the times that we live in. There is one exception, though. There was another man who suffered unjustly, but he didn't suffer in the dark. God tells us that Jesus died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Justice was satisfied, but it was not satisfied in Jesus' life. He had to die. It was satisfied after his death and when he rose again. In that one particular act of love, God has offered a general solution to the problem which so tore Job and his friends apart. The comforters were not wrong to complain about this problem of God's justice. They were wrong in re-engineering a reality. If they had been content to live with the mystery, to say, we have a problem here, it's a real problem, we don't know what to do with it, we just trust God, that would have been fine. And so that leaves us in this last place, that wise counsel, wise comfort, restricts the particularities of suffering to Jesus. God has told us in particular why Jesus died. Jesus, of all people, died to make us good. But we only know in general why anybody else suffers. Romans 8 tells us that we are adopted children because of our union with Jesus. In union with Jesus, we suffer death. We go where Jesus went. We go with him in death and we go with him into eternal life. Romans 8 tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. There again, another general truth, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But Romans 8 does not tell us why another group of schoolgirls were kidnapped in Nigeria again this week. Romans 8 does not tell us the particularities of suffering in the world, of a pandemic, of people dying because they have lost the will to live because of isolation. Romans 8 does not tell you the particularities of your suffering. 
but it also certainly does not tell us that retribution was involved in any of these horrors. The only particular thing that we can know is that Christ died for those people. And that being acquainted with grief, he is able to be a perfect high priest and savior for me and for you. And for anyone who puts their trust in him. And he intercedes with the Father for us on our behalf. The better that you know Jesus, the more resources you will have to deal with suffering, hopelessness, tragedy, and heartache. Whatever your own sufferings or somebody else's. For Jesus knows more than any other person what it is to suffer and what it is to suffer unjustly. And Jesus, more than any other person, knows what we go through when we suffer. And Jesus is the only person who can give meaning to our suffering because he has promised that all who follow him in suffering will also share with him in eternal glory. And so, friends, whether you are suffering or you are comforting someone who is suffering, learn from the mistakes of Job's friends. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, please would you help us to bring your comfort and bring your compassion to the world and to those whom you put in our life who are facing suffering. Father, help us not to be like Job's friends, but rather to learn from them to be the comforters that you call us to be. May we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the greatest comforter of all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.